Quinton here makes sustainable clothing. Yep. His shipping company, FedEx, has set a goal of having carbon neutral operations by 2040. Great news. This sustainability effort makes Quinton very happy. Nice. FedEx, where now meets next. They will come to understand that Bitcoin is hope for nonviolent revolutionaries in the environmental movement who seek to end the petrodollar, usher in a world that is not based on the excessive consumption that inflationary fiat currencies incentivize, stabilize the intermittency of renewable energy, find a home for new solar and wind on the grid, and mitigate methane that would otherwise have been atmosphere-borne and contributed to climate change. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know, and I will be your narrator for this evening, morning, or day, whatever it is. And we have got a great one from Bitcoin Magazine today from first-time author uh, Daniel Batten. I'm not, I'm not sure if I've read anything by Daniel before, um, but, uh, but this was a really great one. This one was kind of covering the... Really kind of just digging into the failure of Greenpeace's propaganda, shitcoin-funded propaganda against Bitcoin and the Change the Code campaign. Um, and, you know, as someone who's just kind of like a passive observer of this, it's really kind of hilarious to see it put in context and the way he breaks it down. And also that the discussion, the that there are new people rising up to take the mantle, particularly on the left, that are making it very clear what an incredible benefit Bitcoin is in numerous different ways from an environmental and economic perspective. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the right-leaning Bitcoiners really crap on left-leaning Bitcoiners. I mean, obviously the right and the left are at each other's throats constantly these days. But I think there's, or at least I've seen from a vocal perspective, I've seen an increase in prominent left-leaning Bitcoiners. And... I'm sure most people would say, and I would admit, admit that I typically lean right, at least in the context of the rhetoric. You know, a lot of the libertarian philosophy, which you could, you could roughly call me that, um, aligns with the right's rhetoric. But I tend to, but I really enjoy, I really enjoy and appreciate dissenting voices if they actually have honest discussions about the issue. And that's what I love about Bitcoin, is that there's something that... There's essentially this totem to enable us to debate and be angry at each other, but actually stick around. We're, we're still a singular community, despite all of the various ways in which we constantly argue. And because of that, we actually begin that there's actually the possibility of reaching a conclusion. There's actually the possibility of finding an answer or sorting out differences because we have something tying us together to actually have a discussion rather than just splitting up and dividing off and saying those people are idiots, they're my enemy, and that's where it stops, which is what happens in politics. And then also the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is there's this concrete reality, there's this concrete economic, there's no cheating it to point to where, you know, where the political sphere is just this never-ending catastrophizing, and it's always this vague future model of total and utter collapse, and the earth is about to burst into flames, and the only total and complete un no trade-off solution is just total government control of everything. And any discussion whatsoever about the degree of control or the totality of the problem is just absolute heresy, and you're a fool, and you're anti-science. But I'm constantly, I'm getting a little bit too much in the weeds here for my intro, but I'm constantly fascinated by how much alignment uh, there is between so many different political persuasions and disparate views because of the scope of the solution that Bitcoin provi provides for so many different issues today. And considering, you know, the left, tip, the normal left typically only listens to the left and the right listens only to the right, kind of as a rule, I appreciate seeing... The environment, the environmentalists 
who actually care about the reality of the issue and practical solutions that do not want to starve hundreds of millions of people and cause incredible poverty who for billions of people who are just now eking themselves out of poverty for the first time thanks to low-cost abundant energy sources i've said it numerous times on this show i think the bridge that proof of work provides between the allocation of resources as a sound money and the production and sustainability of energy sources that tether to reality by the mechanism of proof of work i just i genuinely think bitcoin will lead to a energy and a revolution in energy that is comparable in magnitude to the revolution that it is creating in money and finance and it's always fascinating to me to watch how various the political persuasions and in conclusions can be when people are actually having honest discussions about the issue because when you actually when you actually care about the principles of the matter and and you actually care about human rights and you actually care about the environment from a boots on the ground reality perspective and not just the rhetoric and the fake stats and the constant catastrophizing it's just fascinating from how many different directions you can end up at the same conclusion Anyway, that was that was an unnecessary rant before we're going uh, before the show or before the article here. So I'm going to let Daniel Batten, the author of our article today, drop the mic in this excellent piece in just a moment. Real quick, I just want to thank Fold for giving me sats back today on my largest expense for the month. I tell you what, when you land on something good for that first spin, it's just a really good feeling. Uh, I've got a special link for you guys and 5,000 free sats right in the show notes. And don't forget that when you're doing your regular auto stacking and auto withdrawal from Swan, which I still actually had somebody the other day said they didn't realize they do auto withdrawal. Understand when you sign up with Swan, you can set it so that they automatically stack the Bitcoin every week or month, whatever it is, and then automatically send it to your cold card. Like you don't even, you don't withdraw, they just send you your Bitcoin based on whatever amount or interval that you set. It doesn't get any easier than that. But obviously, in that situation, you need a cold card. So don't forget that you can get 5% off with code Bitcoin Audible. And there is this special, magical place where you can find all of this invaluable information. And that is in the notes of the show, right there in your podcast player. Man, the convenience is out of this world. All right, that is, that's, this is the longest intro I've had in quite a while. So I apologize. We will not waste any more time. Let's get into today's article. And... It's titled, Greenpeace USA's Misinformed Environmental Attacks Only Energize and Galvanize Bitcoiners by Daniel Batten Underlying disinformation exposed during Greenpeace USA's Change the Code campaign only served to rally the Bitcoin community. This is an opinion editorial by Daniel Batten, a Bitcoin ESG analyst, climate tech investor, author, and environmental campaigner. Growing up in the 70s, our local council tried to put a rubbish tip into our coastal New Zealand community. The whole community came together, not just to fight a common enemy and win, but to discover the power of what is possible as part of a grassroots movement, which is impossible alone. In years to come, most of that community, including myself, would go on to become voices for humanitarian and climate justice. An image of Daniel Batten on his home ground overlooking Bethel's Beach. Starting young, my first environmental action at age four. From Thursday Magazine, 1974. Fast forward to October 2022. I would never have imagined I would be part of a community of environmentalists Defending the Environment Against Greenpeace USA A period of intensive data analysis six months earlier had led me to the inescapable conclusion that Bitcoin was a net positive to the environment. But powerful forces were at work to hoodwink the world's environmentally minded through a seemingly orchestrated misinformation campaign. The misinformation was strong enough that I initially fell for it myself. In a world where the hobby website of a paid employee of a central bank is treated as canonical truth by mainstream media, right up to the White House and conflicts of interest evades mainstream media scrutiny, 
there have been precious few public relations victories for the Bitcoin community when it comes to the environmental narrative. Bitcoin uses too much energy has become the new immigrants are taking our jobs. The incantation of vested interests and the hoodwinked who, wittingly or unwittingly, stoke the fires of populism with sound bites over sound analysis. What we are seeing is not new. We saw the tobacco industry influence medical opinion for many years about the safety of smoking. We saw the print media criticize the environmental credentials of the internet, predicting it would cause coal factories to fire up worldwide. Today, it's unsurprising that central banks that want their central bank digital currencies or CBDCs to be the future of digital currency and not Bitcoin, which disintermediates central banks, should happily fan the fires of doubt about Bitcoin using environmental credentials as its attack vector. In this historical context, it is no surprise that Ripple's executive chair, Chris Larson, among others, paid $5 million to launch a Greenpeace USA campaign attacking Bitcoin's energy use. And Ripple is not just another altcoin. It is launching its own CBDC pilot project. CBDCs in Bitcoin represent fundamentally competing visions for our digital currency future. Nor should we be surprised that seemingly no mainstream journalist has publicly questioned either Larson or Greenpeace about an evident conflict of interest. But despite the money, the compassionate pass from mainstream media and a well-trained in-house media team that did its best to neuro-associate Bitcoin with stock video footage of climate catastrophe Greenpeace USA's campaign did not go well. The Change the Code campaign actually energized and galvanized strong environmentalist voices within the Bitcoin community, including Troy Cross, Margot Paez, Adam Wright, and others. It motivated podcasters such as Bitcoin Archive, Pomp, and Crypto Burb, who had not previously examined the environmental benefits of Bitcoin, to start doing so. It was also the catalytic moment that took me from being a read-only Twitter user to becoming one more outspoken voice for the environmental merits of Bitcoin. Greenpeace USA had the opportunity for a strategic retreat, but it did not take it. Instead, in September, timed seemingly for after the Ethereum merge, Larson and others spent an additional $1 million with Greenpeace USA to intensify the attacks on Bitcoin. This time, the backfire was even more pronounced. On Greenpeace USA's Twitter feed, a horde of Bitcoiners weighed in with data and fact, mercilessly counterattacking Greenpeace's campaign for what they perceived as its misinformation, ignorance, questionable ethics, lack of science, use of PSYOP-style messaging, and inability to see how thoroughly it had been played by central bankers. Remarkably few of Greenpeace USA's own 218,000 followers nor any other branches of Greenpeace internationally, came to its aid. And Greenpeace USA wasn't just repeatedly ratioed, it was honey-badgered. Lynn Alden's commentary on Troy Cross's reply to a Greenpeace USA tweet captures the extent of the backfire. Tweet from Greenpeace USA What are you going to do for the climate today? Troy Cross 1. Escape the fiat system of debt-fueled consumption and malinvestment forced by runaway money supply. Two, mine Bitcoin on venting methane and curtailed solar. Three, defend one and two against you. The Greenpeace tweet has 198 likes. The Troy Cross response has 2,630 likes. Response by Lynn Alden. A philosophy professor and environmentalist with less than a tenth of the following of Greenpeace just ratioed Greenpeace by 10 to 1 on Twitter.com. No other branch of Greenpeace seems to have retweeted any of the Change the Code campaign since September. Organizers set up a Change the Code Twitter handle, which spent many months limping to 1,300 Twitter followers, 80% of whom seem to be Bitcoiners based on their profile descriptions. With the clockwork relentlessness of an oil pump jack, the account continues to grind out near-daily anti-Bitcoin soundbites, only to see nearly every tweet ratioed by about 20 to 1 by the community. It has proven a valuable resource for Bitcoiners. Not only is it very useful to see all the misinformation cataloged in one place, but 
More importantly, each time a tweet is ratioed, it allows Bitcoiners to educate themselves and others in the community about how to counter Bitcoin misinformation. Far from turning more people against Bitcoin, the campaign has served only to draw attention to Greenpeace USA's departure from grassroots funding, while providing a forum for Bitcoiners to demonstrate the weakness of the anti-Bitcoin case, once mainstream media was no longer there to insulate the attacker from a horde of highly informed Bitcoiners. Willy Wu calculated the campaign lost for Greenpeace at a minimum of around $7.1 million in subscriptions worldwide. The brand and reputational damage will likely have been much more and take much longer to recover from. While outwardly, Greenpeace USA will shrug shoulders and say, well, you always lose some supporters on direct action campaigns and Bitcoiners are vocal on Twitter. Behind closed doors, its executive management will be asking what went wrong in what has been an unprecedented social media catastrophe. So, why did the Change the Code campaign perform badly? The first foreboding signs came one year earlier. In the only level playing field debate on if Bitcoin is a threat to the environment, a predominantly anti-Bitcoin general audience swung 17.9% to become predominantly pro-Bitcoin after just one hour of hearing for the first time not just a central banker's narrative, but a Bitcoiner's right of reply, according to a calculation of voters from the user forum on the video itself. Plus 17.9% is a swing of gargantuan proportions. The second alarm bell for Greenpeace USA was much closer to home. Greenpeace's base is 18 to 34-year-olds. This age group is twice as likely to think climate change poses a serious threat. What Greenpeace USA seemed not to realize until it was too late was that 18 to 34-year-olds are also almost twice as likely to hold Bitcoin as the rest of the general population. The third alarm bell should have been that these 18- to 34-year-olds are the least likely to trust mainstream media, meaning Greenpeace USA's base was the least likely to have believed the highly skewed narrative about Bitcoin propagated throughout mainstream news channels. Greenpeace USA completely miscalculated what would happen in forums where the quote, Bitcoin can be good for the environment case, could not be censored the way it had been throughout mainstream media outlets. To illustrate the extent of the amplify and censor imbalance in mainstream media, a single case where Bitcoin mining used an off-grid natural gas plant has been amplified by continual regurgitation. But the 31 cases where Bitcoin mining operations use zero emission or carbon-negative energy sources have gone unreported. Greenpeace's direct action campaigns typically target large corporations with something to hide. Greenpeace USA also miscalculated what would happen when it took on a grassroots movement founded on the values of consensus and transparency which had nothing to hide and an untold story to tell. It miscalculated how Bitcoiners would unite together to defend an attack from an environmental goliath that they perceived to have compromised its integrity by taking private money from a conflicted billionaire to fund their campaign. But it also perhaps miscalculated how unsympathetic its 18-34-year-old to 34 year old base would be to its anti-Bitcoin narrative. For when the ratios came thick and fast on Twitter, its base did not defend it. That vacuum allowed Bitcoin Twitter to do the job that mainstream media once did, hold an organization to account for taking funding from an apparently conflicted source. What positives can Greenpeace USA take away from this campaign? Well, if its intention was to galvanize the Bitcoin environmental movement and create new leaders within it, provide a forum where Bitcoiners can educate and inform its base about the environmental benefits of Bitcoin, and highlight a tactical error from its executive management team to its supporters, then its campaign has been a resounding success. It wasn't supposed to be like this, even before the extra $1 million from Ripple was paid to amplify Greenpeace USA's message directly after the Ethereum merge, Cross warned the Bitcoin community in July that more pressure would come on Bitcoin post-merge. 
it seemed the antagonists of Bitcoin were expecting this to be the turning of the tide, where they triumphantly cried, Ethereum has proven it can do the right thing for the environment. Now it's Bitcoin's turn to acquire of cheerleaders. They did not expect the reply, Bitcoin is now the only major cryptocurrency that can become an emission-negative network. Nor did they expect the supporting data, showing that 7 megawatts of vented methane-based mining per month is all it takes to make the whole Bitcoin network emission-negative by December 2024, a monthly rate already surpassed using flared methane power. As for Bitcoiners, we can celebrate this moment. It is not the final battle, not even close. The opponents of Bitcoin will regather stronger. We can expect new missiles of misinformation, new angles of attack vectors through the curatable channels of mainstream media and political influence that have worked for them to date. But they have also learned that in an open forum where the right of reply cannot be censored, the truth will shine. Social media is one stadium where they cannot win. If Greenpeace USA introspects deeply, it will realize that we are on the same team. Bitcoin is a reflection of its own core values, not just a financial sovereignty movement, but a human rights movement and an environmental movement. It is a movement built on Satoshi Nakamoto's vision of peer-to-peer -peer solidarity, returning power to the people algorithmically through the proof-of-work consensus mechanism, while disintermediating the unelected financial elites who, by virtue of wealth or position, can make decisions that are bad for the people and widen wealth inequality. They will come to understand that Bitcoin is hope for nonviolent revolutionaries in the environmental movement who seek to end the petrodollar, usher in a world that is not based on the excessive consumption that inflationary fiat currencies incentivize, stabilize the intermittency of renewable energy, find a home for new solar and wind on the grid, and mitigate methane that would otherwise have become atmosphere-borne and contributed to climate change. Bitcoin cannot fix the environment. Only people can do that. But Bitcoin was created to help the people, and that spirit of its founder lives on in everyone who is behind it. The environmentalists within the Bitcoin community are growing rapidly, in number and in valor. Just like that coastal community of the 70s, each attack on what we hold dear serves only to energize and galvanize us, creating new leaders who will go on to become irrepressible voices for humanitarian and climate justice. This is a guest post by Daniel Batten. Opinions expressed are entirely their own and do not necessarily reflect those of BTC Incorporated or Bitcoin Magazine. I have no idea if Bitcoin Magazine like cares whether or not I add that little bit, but it's fun for some reason. I have no idea why. Let's thank an awesome Bitcoin company real quick while we think about it. 13.2 million. That is how many sats I have gotten back personally using the Fold card for a year and three months. And at the current price of Bitcoin, that's about $2,700. That is the number of sats that I have gotten back in my normal day-to-day -day bills and fiat expenses that I would do, that, that I do all the time, that I would do with or without it. I have simply used the Fold debit card instead. It is my main driver. It has replaced all of my other cards. Again, this is a debit card, not a credit card, a debit card that gets you sats back 1% by default, or you can try your luck and do the, you can spin the wheel of sats. In fact, just a few minutes ago, um, I uh, actually have a lot of extra spins that I didn't think I was going to have because I got 2% back on my largest business purchase for the month. And I had somebody ask me the other day, it's like, so are you even telling the truth? How come you always have a I just spun story for your ads? It's like, well, that's because I, I mean, I have charges and bills and stuff basically every single day. I mean, how often do you go through the day without paying for something? Well, I get sats back on all of it. So yeah, pretty much always have a I spun this today to talk about. And don't forget about their gift cards, too. The gift cards are seriously a cheat code. Right now in November, the premium card holders get up to $1,000 in Amazon gift cards at 5% back. 
That is a 5% discount on everything that you do on Amazon. If you are an Amazon shopper, that is, you don't, don't pass that up. That's a good one. And you have tons of other major merchants to use. Like I, I talk, talk about it all the time is using Uber, particularly when you travel. That is a huge cheat code to get a lot of sats back. And if you haven't signed up yet, you can use my link and you get 5,000 free sats just for downloading the app and making an account. Like you don't have to, you don't have to pay for the premium card. You don't have to do anything. They'll just give you 5,000 sats to check it out. So just go to guyswan.com slash fold and you can be 5,000 sats richer today. That's a pretty good deal. And you know where you'll find the link? I'll let, I'll let you guess. All right. So I really enjoyed this. This is like this was like posted yesterday, I think. This is barely. Where's the date on this guy? November second. What's today? I don't even know what today is, and I can't. <laughs> My calendar. Yes. Okay. It is the third. I have no idea. Time. Time. What is time? Even I don't even know. Um. But uh, today is the third, and this was posted yesterday. And Daniel, I don't think we have read anything by Daniel. I don't, I don't recognize the name. Um, but uh, there is, I was immediately like, oh, this is great. Um, and it's funny too, because I don't, it's funny, like I would refer to, like if I wanted to say philosophically, am I an environmentalist? I would say undoubtedly yes. But I have such a bad taste in my mouth with that word because of the political environmentalism, which I think is, which I think is legitimately, from a realistic and practical standpoint, anti-environmentalism. It is destroying the environment to the virtue of saving the environment. And I also think Alex Epstein has a remarkably poignant um, breakdown of why the, tra- the traditional, traditional is not like, the, the political, the political environmentalist movement is largely an anti-human movement, um, and the the general public does not know this. is generally not aware of that position, and that it's like an anti-impact. It's that if humans exist at all and they make any impact whatsoever, then that is a deep, terrible, terrible negative, regardless of what the impact is. Now, I do not subscribe to the climate disaster. I, I don't. I do not see a crisis. Um, and I've been listening and hearing that the end of the world is coming in 12 years for 20 years or so, and it has not happened. And in fact, even the, the claim that like weather events, the constant focus of every news report and every article saying this is the worst hurricane and this is the worst forest fire and everything and droughts and stuff that we've ever seen if you look at the aggregate numbers, if you look to look at the larger statistics, none of these things are outside of normal ranges. In fact, many of them are declining. We've actually had very, very few hurricanes. The 90s and the early 2000s were packed with hurricanes, specifically in like eastern North Carolina. And we've kind of had like a little piddly nothing. It's kind of been blank for a number of years. Now, I point this out specifically because Daniel and I might disagree on certain elements of the arguments, certain elements or certain premises behind the arguments. Because I do not say that we don't have an impact. That's that's absurd. The the existence of any human has an impact on their environment. But the catastrophizing that we have in the political and uh, public knowledge base, which is not the underlying knowledge base, it is not the scientific basis, um, the catastrophizing is absurd. It's ridiculous. In fact, uh, one of my favorite books probably that really changed my mind on this was, um, well, it didn't change my mind on it. Like I was already kind of headed in this direction, but it lays out a very strong argument and also understand some of my favorite opinions or my favorite uh, breakdowns of this concept actually come from people who ascribe to the CO2 is causing harm to the environment and it is something that we should think about and consider but that it should be done in a rational and sensible way and most importantly in the context of human flourishing that it should be talked about and understood from the position of what enables us to be most prosperous and most in line with our environment or maybe symbiotic is the term to use and 
so my favorite book on this is by Steve Coonan, who Steve Coonan is, uh, he was the, I can't remember, some like top climate advisor for the Obama administration. And he 100% subscribed to all of the political claims and positions and alarmism uh, around climate for a very, very long time. And then while he was actually part of the the regime is, is part of the app, the political apparatus, essentially the head of it. Um, he uh, he decided that he was going to basically do a, and he actually talks about that he leads he leads the book off with this, um, is that he decided he was going to brute force the data. He was going to stress test all of the climate science to essentially prove everything that they espouse all the time, and. It completely fell apart when he had this this group of scientists that he got together to just basically stress test all of the claims, all of the data, and everything. And he was constantly seeing discrepancies. He was constantly seeing where the claim was just so out of line with what we're actually seeing. And he basically completely changed his framing around the topic. And understand he did not change his underlying premise. He simply looked at the data and understood that the claims and the models and the political perspective of there's zero cost to, you know, going to an alternative and we must absolutely 100% get away from fossil fuels across the board in every form and fashion. He simply changed the reality or the understanding that that has no trade-offs. Like the idea, the very notion that it has no trade-offs is frankly moronic. And I don't mean to insult anyone, but it just kind of is. It's our dominant energy source for a reason. If it was more economical to use these other energy sources, we would have simply moved to it out of the sheer reality that the profit margins would be way better. But Steve, uh, Steve Coonan lays out a really, really good argument it's, uh, in a book called Unsettled. Um, and uh, one of the biggest things that I think he found that stuck with me and I since like looked up because I was like, holy crap, this is crazy, is that the IPCC reports is the stark difference between the actual scientific report versus the summaries submitted by political committee to policymakers. And that these summaries were incredibly twisted and their wording, their wording and their interpretations were very, very different from the actual IPCC report. And that so much of it is just biased translation. It's essentially there's so much... There's so much motivation and and money in this giant, quote unquote, virtue signaling green uh, ESG apparatus that they're constantly trying to make data seem the way that gets them all of their money and gets them all of their funding and gets them all the headlines and gets the you know mainstream media in a tizzy and posting and sharing and giving out awards and all the great stuff. There's there's incentive on top of incentive on top of incentive to find that the climate is about to, the whole world is about to burst into flames because that's what gets everybody attention. That's what gets everybody funding. That's what it gets everybody, um, you know, political influence. So if it turns out that it's not doing a whole lot, we don't really know to what degree we are having an effect. We just know that there's kind of like a mild outcome and it's not really causing any like horrible weather disasters. It may be changing patterns out of the sheer reality that impact and temperature make things shift, but that our ability to harness energy is not causing untold deaths and like horrible victims of climate in fact those things are in constant decline and have been for like 140 years and that the cost of attempting to remove this is so staggering as to be almost impossible to calculate well then you come to a very different conclusion and that's not a very clear or black and white anything about it it's just it's just kind of nothing but gray Yet the political apparatus has taken it and just driven so much fear into people, as it always, always does. There's, there is no issue in which the political system doesn't do that. The, the fear and division of the people is the power of the state. That is their job. That is how politics succeeds. Make people afraid and make people hate their neighbor for some arbitrary reason. Politics is strong. But when people feel safe and they feel like they're part of a local community that's on their team, well, then 
They have, there's no reason for untold amounts of power and this federal apparatus that steals trillions and trillions of dollars from us every year. Therefore, it is always beneficial to them to make sure that we are always thinking that we're on the edge of disaster and that the world is coming to an end and that our next door neighbor is about to stab us in the back. So you put politics in the middle of every single issue and then politics becomes insanely powerful. Now, I bring all of this up to note that Daniel and I are aligned despite our difference in the premise. I do not believe it is a disaster, but I think it's perfectly sensible to lower our impact on the environment, or at least our negative impact, obviously. And somehow, the most diehard, self-appointed environmentalists have taken to supporting an authority and a monetary system which is so shockingly destructive to the environment. To all of the potential environmentalists who probably disagree with my take on this, who, are, who end up listening to this show, understand that if there is anything that you wish to see to have the environment in a better position and to have it better taken care of, get rid of fiat money. It is absolutely the top concern if we are talking about the, the incredible consumption and waste at the chasing of a nominal profit, of a nominal increase in the supposed uh, value of something. And when we just talked about this, this is, this is what the capital misallocation uh, episode was about that we just, we just finished up. So something that's so important to remember, which I don't think we really got into in that episode is that capital misallocation is explicitly waste. It means that we're consuming and destroying resources. We're, we're strip mining all of our sustainable systems to make them nothing but destructive. And rather than work toward our prosperity and alignment with the world, they cause poverty and misalignment. And this is something that I think is, seems to be completely lost in the political, political discussion around environmentalism. There is a lot completely lost in the discussion around environmentalism. But this one is one of the ones that I think is most egregious, is that there is no stronger correlator to the cleanliness and sustainability of the environment than the prosperity of the people who live in that area. Poverty is the number one destroyer of the environment. Do you want to know why? Because people who are cold and hungry don't give a flying fuck about the environment. In fact, I would bet that most people, most normal people have no idea that we have way less pollution today than we did like 100 years ago. I mean, we used to spew toxic chemicals into the environment constantly. I mean, go back 130, 140 years, it wasn't even uncommon for there to be so much gunk and chemicals and trash on the surface of a river that the river would literally catch fire and burn for days and days. We adopted cars in cities so quickly, in large part, because they were a vastly cleaner option. There were literally rivers of human fecal matter and horse dung that would just flow down the sides of the streets. There's descriptions of what it was like in the more common and poorer sides of the city, of just how utterly disgusting, because there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough capital to deal with it all. We've come a very long way and it is largely because we have excess energy to clean up things. I think it's really easy to forget or just completely lose perspective in all of the propaganda of where we came from and what the ultimate trend is here. I mean, consider the fact that they made CO2, which plants literally breathe. It is not toxic to the environment. It is a crucial part of the life cycle of this planet. It is not poisonous. It is not a pollutant. I just think we've lost all perspective. Something that's very interesting on this, on this topic in particular is the, what NASA has found as they're referring to as the great greening effect. Um, and there's a lot of suspicion. I mean, we, you see this in greenhouses. You know, you pump extra CO2 into a greenhouse you get more green. <laughs> you, uh, uh, the, the plants grow faster, healthier, 
and more lushly green. Um, and NASA has actually seen this over the last... I can't remember exactly what the, the trend period is, but basically satellite images are showing that there's an incredible greening of the planet, which could very likely be the result of us putting excess CO2 in the air. But what's funny is none of this really matters. Like, my, the fact that my premise is different from Daniel's is kind of irrelevant because my intent still, my philosophy is still to be symbiotic with the environment, is to have a clean environment. And the question is, what is the direction to actually accomplish that? What are the top concerns? CO2 to me is not a top concern. Fiat money is insanely destructive of the environment. In fact, I am more worried about a single carpet bomb that just wipes out cities and turns every, just miles of land into just dirt and rubble and trash and toxic chemicals and dead humans. That is something that I think is of an environmental disaster. But what's funny is the environmentalists, the political environmentalists, never seem to care about the bombs. And I think we are more than overdue for an honest environmentalist movement. And I can have an honest discussion. I can have an interesting discussion with people I disagree with on this issue all day long if they actually have a practical approach. If they actually think about this from the idea of human flourishing and they think about this from the idea of us being uh, in symbiotic with our environment and they understand how crucial the economics of energy and the prosperity of the people are in making sure that we are not being destructive to the environment and more importantly that we have the capacity to be clean and the wealth in order to have optionality in how we can provide for ourselves and increase our prosperity and achieve our ends while caring about and actually choosing paths that explicitly have different externalities. And it's just interesting to me that Bitcoin aligns us because it serves both purposes. There's a really great quote Daniel has. It's toward, I think this one's towards the end of the piece, but it says, They will come to understand that Bitcoin is hope for nonviolent revolutionaries in the environmental movement who seek to end the petrodollar, usher in a world that is not based on the excessive consumption that inflationary fiat currencies incentivize, stabilize the intermittency of renewable energy, find a home for new solar and wind on the grid, and mitigate methane that would otherwise have become atmosphere-born and contribute to climate change. You know, I think not only... Not only is the waste and speculative consumption, the the horrible incentives of the fiat system, such a destroyer of sustainability, such a destructive force in almost any way that you can imagine it over the long term, because it simply is out of line with the reality of resources. It's it's consumption for the sake of consumption. You should listen to Alan Farrington's The Capital Strip Mine. It's one of my favorites, and I think it's such a great way to understand the framing of the misallocation that we went into with Stephen Lubka. Um, he hits a lot of the, a lot of different points around it. He goes like, Stephen was very broad in uh, all of the things that he covered on the topic. And Alan Farrington really kind of goes deep on a couple of the specifics about how it is that the, the incentives of the fiat mechanism and the, the poor money or the the loose money and the, the interest rate manipulation of the financial markets essentially incentivize people to eat their seed in order to get the nominal gain of additional consumption at the cost of not having next year's harvest. We essentially strip mine all of the actual productive capacity. We export all of our manufacturing. We don't make anything anymore. We become this like fake service and financialized um, environment and we just chase the numbers because of how it skews and just distorts the reality of the costs of everything of everything that we invest in of the capital that we have and there's nothing nothing that could put us more out of line and destroy the symbiosis that we have with our environment to make it good for humans and sustainable for the environment and how we interact with things and our resources 
than to have it so that we don't even know what the cost of these resources are and that we would just strip mine them for everything that we possibly could to get the appearance of a nominal value because it's as if because the money is lying to us and telling us that it's all infinite that's essentially what the constant printing of money and the constant incentivizing of more and more debt does it makes us act as if we have infinite resources rather than um managing and making sustainable our systems of resource production and manufacturing and more importantly being very efficient about the resources that we have so that we don't constantly just throw excess away but we figure out how to use it because it is a precious scarce resource it's not something that we have an infinite supply even though our money is lying to us and telling us that we do but i think there is pressure i, th I think there's exhaustion with a and maybe a generation, I don't, I don't know. And maybe this is me in my, my own little circle and, and, you know, I'm just in my bubble and I have no idea what the real world is. But it feels like to me that we're overdue for an honest discussion. And I think there is this pent up desire to have a real discussion about it. And, and I really appreciate as much as there are, I mean, there's plenty of things that I disagree with on with so many Bitcoiners. But I actually appreciate hearing that voice and seeing them stand up and actually defending Bitcoin from that perspective because Bitcoin does align. It serves both purposes whether you agree with one of the perspectives or not. And it's incredible how non-scientific, how completely anti-science and so blatantly biased the information and the supposed the supposed data that Greenpeace has pointed to and the White House. I, that's one of the things that I really want to read on the show. I've just started into it, but it's really long and it's a little bit hard to finagle because of the annotations. But Nick Carter, and I've mentioned this before, Nick Carter has a really great annotation um, breaking down all of the absurdities and the just outright garbage sources used for the White House climate report on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies specifically. But it's phenomenal. We'll get into it at some point on the show. I can't, I can't guarantee a timeline because, like I said, it's long and beefy. But it's good. But one of the things that gives me hope that, you know, the, the constant, because of the unbelievable, the unbelievable and completely justified distrust in the mainstream media, um, I think is our best... I think it's the best indicator for the way things are going is that we, there is a whole generation, the younger generation, the 18 to 34 are refusing to let the mainstream be the director, the director of the discussion. And I think this Greenpeace situation is actually a really good example of the momentum and the passion behind those who are actually trying to find a solution and know and realize just how potent of a benefit Bitcoin is to exactly this issue. And Daniel actually, I think Daniel, he posted his tweet, which was great. Um, where is this? It says it, it, they were honey badgered, and I believe it's him. Uh, nope, that's not the one. Dang it. I must have, I must have gotten rid of the, uh, must have gotten rid of the tab. But he says that they did not just ratio um, that Tony Troy Cross did not just ratio Greenpeace in their false statement, but that they honey badgered, and that is if uh, it is if they ten to one the response to the original tweet. And I think it's I think it's worth noting the degree of discrepancy is not only did uh, Cross's comment. Uh, get like 2,600 likes, and then Greenpeace's had under 200. But the baseline exposure of Cross versus Greenpeace is the exact opposite. Uh, Greenpeace has 218,000 followers, and Troy has like 21,000 followers. And, you know, it's just so incredible that they're literally taking millions of dollars from a shit coiner to to spread anti-bitcoin propaganda i tell you what that is not something that at greenpeace taking millions of dollars from shit corners from a shitcoin company directly to attack bitcoin is not something i had on my 2020s bingo card but it is pretty amazing at how much it has worked against them 
And, you know, that's, that's also something, too, that we, I think that's why the push to censor social media is so potent right now is because they don't have control over it. You know, he talks about this. Where, where is this? I think I have this saved. And it's perceived. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, so Daniel has a really great quote. It says, As for Bitcoiners, we can celebrate this moment. It is not the final battle, not even close. The opponents of Bitcoin will regather stronger. We can expect new missiles of misinformation, new angles of attack vectors through the curatable channels of mainstream media and political influence that have worked for them to date. But they have also learned that in an open forum where the right of reply cannot be censored, the truth will shine. Social media is one stadium where they cannot win. I really think this is the reason we need to get a hold of the, the security of free speech and free debate in the social sphere, in social media. Because and I think it's still the censoring issue is so difficult. And what's hilarious is that memes are actually a potent way to get around so many of the censorship mechanisms and to convey simple, like strong ideas very quickly. But I think that's what the mainstream is feeling. Uh, the, the establishment parties and the establishment powers and influencers are realizing they, they've, they're used to controlling the discussion. You know, if they don't interview somebody on their cable news network, well, then people don't hear about them. Well, that was the truth 20 years ago. That's not the truth today. They've created a curated environment of discussion where they can give the appearance of debate. They can give the appearance of the struggle to find the truth, but they can limit the window of what they believe is debatable. That falls apart online. That falls apart when everyone is participating. And as biased and controlled as social media has been um, in so many different ways in the past, it still remains the dominant, it still remains vastly more difficult to control than essentially the old media apparatus. And it will be absolute hell. It will be nothing but fights. It will be debates. It will be trolling. It will be all of the things that are negative about people disagreeing in all the different ways. But only in that environment will you actually be able to start parsing out the truth, parsing out details. I'm sure there's a million different ways in which I'm wrong about a million different things. I know because I, I bump into the situations all the time. I have put my foot in my mouth many, many times in my life. It's not something new. You do it too. Welcome. But therein lies the point. Nobody knows whether they're right or wrong. Nobody really knows. We can claim, we can think, you know, I read some books. Great. What, is that, what does that really mean? Did I go outside and climate science myself to prove everything? No. I read a lot and I use some basic heuristics and I come to a conclusion. That doesn't mean I'm right. No matter what we do, we can only ever access or even be aware of a tiny, tiny sliver of a tiny, tiny fraction of everything there is to know. The best we can do is have vague, distant ideas of general trends or patterns. And we're very, very often wrong about those two. And it's so often that our premises are wrong. And those are the things that are the very hardest to actually come to terms with. They're the most difficult by far to change is when you have built your way of thinking on a premise that actually turns out to be incorrect or wrong in a way that you hadn't anticipated. And because we so heavily invest in our premises, we invest in our worldview because it's the foundation for how we think about everything else. I've had some worldview shifts over my life multiple times, and it's not fun. Like, it's crazy to look back on it and be like, man, that was like an epic awakening. And usually Bitcoin is a big one for a lot of people. If you go down, I mean, that's why they call it going down the rabbit hole. It is a complete worldview shift to understand what money actually does for and to society when it's, when it's sound money versus when it's money used as a tool for corruption or as a tool for control. Those things are not hard to come to terms with. They, you know, we build our identity on those things. So it makes sense that people get horribly offended and get un incredibly uncomfortable. Like I'm with no doubt there are people who were listening to me in this episode who just got like, guys, such a 
freaking moron. And I, I get it. Everybody feels that and everybody understands that. But you need to test your premises. We have to feel that way. We have to get uncomfortable because the world is falling apart. Stuff is going very badly and we are clearly pointed in the wrong direction and we need to get down to the premises and understand where we are wrong. And that requires being uncomfortable. That requires debate. That requires getting mad and probably yelling at each other. Social media is a great place for all of that. But ultimately, that's the only way we will, we will ever find the truth. Because it's the, only, it's the only environment in which we know we are testing the difficult questions. And we are very, very lucky that they are not winning in the social media environment. And I think we're going to create enough avenues around with things like uh, a synonym and hole punch and, I mean, and maybe even all of the other attempts to create um, alternative networks that have failed and or never gained adoption. Maybe, maybe even the ones that I'm excited about right now. I've been excited about some in the past that didn't didn't work out um but the the notion of always having another avenue of const the constant fight for additional privacy and additional sovereignty which i think has more steam and has more momentum and has more funding behind it than it has ever had ever more people care about it today from the understanding of or from the perspective of having something that is digital that is purely valuable that is of pure value something like bitcoin just turns the entire idea of the security of the internet on its head. And I think that is a very, very good thing. And it's time that we bring the discussion back. We go back to an honest discussion. We share, we stand behind and share what we think and we defend our arguments, even when that means things get really hairy and dramatic and obnoxious. We've got to stop being afraid to rock the boat because... It's always uncomfortable to talk about how the boat is sinking. There is never a day in which that will not be the case. But I'll tell you, it's a whole lot worse to ride a sinking ship to the bottom of the ocean for the sake of not making people uncomfortable. You know, I didn't really talk much about the energy issue in this one. I mean, we've covered it so many different ways. Um, and honestly, Daniel did a really good job. Um, this, was, this was a really fun article. Oh, actually, there's one thing that I did not... I had heard this, um, but I hadn't really gotten into it. I, well, we're going to close this out um, pretty quick, but this was a really interesting point that I hadn't considered. Really quick, before, before we do the final point, I just want to thank the supporters of this show. First off, if you haven't gotten last-minute tickets, you want to come to Pacific Bitcoin, and you can get 20% off uh, with code GUYS. And if you do come to this epic Bitcoin conference with me, uh, you should definitely have your fold card and you should get Uber gift cards on there and get 3% back going and doing everything that you do. And they also have a number of like hotels and travel options and flight options that you can get gift cards and sats back on. And of course, anything you just buy with the fold card gets you sats back in general. So if you're doing it, make sure you're using the fold card so you can get sats back on all of it. And then after you stack with Swan, you go hang out with a bunch of Bitcoiners and using your fold card and getting your sats back on everything, you're going to take all of the sats and you're going to put it onto a cold card. Or honestly, any of the various amazing and secure hardware options from CoinKite. They have, they have quite the array of optionality when it comes to securing your Bitcoin. And don't forget that you have discounts and goodies and special links all right in the show notes. Okay, so the last thing... Um, oh, and also, also thanks to the Audionauts, man. Um, uh, you guys, I've got actually a couple of great reads that you guys have recommended, um, and I appreciate that. You, you have saved me a lot of time from wasting on Twitter um, because I have gotten, you guys have become a major source of articles for me, so I really, really appreciate that. That is saving me time. Not to mention, obviously, you support the show. But getting back to the point that uh, Daniel made in this that I thought was really cool, um, so quote, this is in reference to Greenpeace and basically how everything went against them and how the Ethereum proof of stake merge, um, did not give them the ammunition that they had expected. But uh, here's the quote. It says, they did not expect the reply. Bitcoin is now the only major cryptocurrency that can, can become, that can become an emission negative network. Nor did they expect the supporting data showing that 7 megawatts of vented methane-based mining per month 
is all it takes to make the whole Bitcoin network emission negative by December 2024, a monthly rate already surpassed using flared methane power. So essentially what he is saying here and what the data shows, what the data suggests is that the rate that we would hope methane, flared methane mining is going up, it's actually surpassing that rate in order to become emission negative by December 2024. And honestly, with the way the profitability, with the way that mechanism works and the, um, the sheer volume of flared methane that we have around the world, I think that's going to happen a lot sooner. Um, I think we're, I think we'll potentially see a hockey stick in regards of that because the flared methane is a $0 cost energy source. There is no overhead. It is pure and absolute waste. Waste that is actually a far more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And there is almost nowhere in which it would not be a net positive in order to cap it off and run uh, more cleanly run Bitcoin miners off of that flared methane. And this makes energy less expensive. This is the most important thing. If you take away anything from all the things that I'm sure you disagree with me on, if you take anything away, it is that poverty is the number one destroyer of the environment. People who are hungry and cold do not care about the environment. You know what they use for energy? They use coal, they use wood, and they use human feces. One of the best things we could actually do for the environment right now is to get the two to three billion people who are in incredible poverty out of poverty, to get them on fossil fuels and stop having them cut down forest to burn, to burn wood, to get them off of coal, to get them off of human feces, to get them to clean their environment and have a lower impact and give them optionality in how they interact with their environment and to get them to begin to care about it because they've actually had a meal in the last five hours. The only practical and sensible way forward that does not cause an insane amount of human suffering is to have more energy, more abundant, far higher energy density, less waste, both from a uneconomical energy production perspective, but also more importantly with the staggering waste and misallocation that comes from the corruption of our monetary system and the false, false price signals, greater reliability of energy production and lower cost for everybody. This will both enable people to better protect themselves from the chaotic uncertainties of weather events and have excess energy and wealth to care about the cleanliness and state of the environment around them. And there is a whole episode and there is many, many episodes behind the fact that I think nuclear is far and wide is the solution to all of those potential goals and that I actually think Bitcoin is going to be a huge incentive for the, the push to make, to have a sensible discussion about nuclear again. More specifically, actually, the liquid salt thorium reactors. But like I said, that's a whole nother discussion. It wasn't even touched on in this piece. But when we're talking about bringing back an honest discussion and real debate, real debate and real practical solutions to the energy problem. That is where I think there is, there is an incredible hope for the future. And the fact that Bitcoin is there essentially to incentivize and make economical any and all of, uh, any, any and all of the real solutions to this problem, I just think is just so poetic. It's so... It, it almost seems impossible that it's aligned in so many different ways, but it really is just incredible. And I have more hope than possibly ever that Bitcoin is going to provide the leaders and the voices and the passion that turns this thing around. I guess time will tell. Um, a thank you, a huge thank you to Daniel Batten for this piece and to Bitcoin Magazine always for having just an incredible... I mean, I read so much from them and they're an amazing resource. So don't forget to check them out. I don't mention them enough when I'm reading stuff off of their website. But a huge thank you to Bitcoin Magazine. 
And to thank you to everybody else, Fold, Swan, CoinKite, Audionauts, all you guys. All you Bitcoiners out there, I love you. I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. It is no coincidence that the century of total war coincided with the century of central banking. Ron Paul. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.